Good morning. All right, so let's just say this together. Thank you, Emma Hall. Thank you, Emma. It was awesome to have somebody else leading worship. Don't be too quick to agree. <laughs> that was my wife. Man. Just going to move this back here. What I have to put up with day to day, huh? All right. Well, I am so glad to see your faces this morning. I want to say a special welcome to any guests who are with us. Um, I believe that the Holy Spirit is who draws us here into this place. It's not just a cool building or a sermon series, but God is sovereignly working in your lives. And so I believe that God has a sovereign purpose for you being here with us this morning. And so I am glad to see that you have listened to the voice of the Spirit and you have joined us today. And uh, we've been here talking about this Apostles' Creed, this thing that we just recited, that Christians have been reciting for a couple thousand years, a thing which for many of us is lifeless and dead. For many of us, it's meaningless. But for the church, it has guided us, it's directed us, it's united us, it's brought us together and said, this is what we believe. This is what we deeply believe. It's not what we feel like we believe. It's not what other religions say or think. It's what we, the Christian church, believes. And so we've been going through it uh, clarifying who we are as a people, clarifying what we really believe, and clarifying, above all, who God is and who we are, right? Because there is a God, and I am not him. And I hope you say that every day. Like, it's a great place to start first thing in the morning, not just, hey, handsome, but maybe start by looking in the mirror and saying, there is a God, and I am not him. So God, I give you this day, and be in it, and help me to hear you, see you, and to walk with you. Let's open up our Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, we have some available for you right there on the backspace. There's two chairs in the back corners, and perhaps somebody will volunteer. If anybody needs a Bible, uh, you can just raise your hand and wave it around, and somebody will probably come grab you one. But you, I see people standing up to do it. Derek's doing it. Anybody need a Bible? All right. Cool. Matthew chapter 16. So if you don't know how Bibles work, I just want to give you a quick lesson. I know many of you know. Uh, but by, the Bible is broken up into Old Testament and New Testament. We're going to be looking at the New Testament. So if you're looking for Matthew, flip to about the middle and then head to the right a little ways until you start seeing names that sound familiar, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you know, common names. If you're seeing words with lots of Ks at the top corner, like Habakkuk, you know, that's not where we're at. We're going to keep going left and keep looking around. And then you'll notice, once you find that name Matthew, it's the first book of the New Testament, that there are if you look at the page, there are large numbers, and then there are smaller numbers. The large numbers are the chapters, so we're going to Matthew 16, so just flip till you get there. And then we're going to be looking at the smaller numbers, which is uh, the verses, and we're going to be looking at verse 13 through 16. Um, so basically those were put in there by people to help us find our way around, so it's kind of like a map. So hopefully you got it. And I did want to say this about Bibles. Why I recommend a paper Bible It's because it helps you get a sense of where we're at, right? If you got it on your phone, which is great because you can look at it, um, if you're on your phone, you don't know if we're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. You don't know if this is like before Jesus or after Jesus or during Jesus or anything. You don't know like the context or the place. So it's good to have a paper Bible, be able to find your location. So that's why we have them back there. You can take one home. They're free. All right, Matthew chapter 16. That was a long introduction to there, right? Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. I'm going to read these verses out loud. Now, again, before we read this, I want to say this one thing. What you believe about Jesus will change everything. So this is a dangerous message this morning. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, 
he asked his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is a crazy, crazy passage here. Um, it's it's just three verses that are really compact and really short, but there's a lot happening, and there's this sense of adventure and life and craziness that's going on in the midst of it. What's been happening is that Jesus has been traveling around, and he's been doing all kinds of insane stuff. He's been healing people, like blind people, deaf people. He's been feeding people, thousands of people with just a little bit of food. He's been forgiving sins. He's been announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is that thing that we talked about last week, this biblical idea of what God is trying to create on earth. And it was announced and it came to earth the day that Jesus was born. And so Jesus is bringing and telling us what that kingdom looks like. He says, look, in the kingdom of God, there's no hunger. Boom, 5,000 people are fed. He says, in the kingdom of God, there is no sickness. Boom, here's your sight. I know you were born blind, but here it is. You can see. Boom, here's your leg healed. You can walk. Boom, you've been bleeding most of your life. It's time to stop because in the kingdom of God, there is no sickness. He's announcing and bringing the kingdom of of God and people are talking about it a lot. It's the biggest thing that's happened in this region since matzo balls, okay? That's how big this is. You know how big matzo balls are, right? It's huge, massive. That's like the equivalent of sliced bread back in the day. All right, so people are talking and uh, Jesus is talking and he's got his friends who are closest to him and they're hanging out and, and he says, hey guys, who do they think that I am? What, what are they saying? What, what, tell me. So one guy, he says, you know, hey, I heard somebody say you're John the Baptist. Come back from the dead. John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin who was beheaded, beheaded just a couple of chapters earlier in this text. So he says, I, some people are saying that you're your own cousin. Come back to life. Weird. And then somebody else says, well, somebody else I heard said that you're Elijah come back from the dead. Okay. And then a third disciple is like, well, well, I heard that you're the prophet Jeremiah who also came back from the dead. You kind of get a, you get a sense of what's going on here is that people are saying that Jesus is the reincarnation of a dead prophet. Now, Jews didn't even believe in reincarnation. So that just shows you how confused they really were about what they were seeing and what was going on in this kingdom that was coming through Jesus. So Jesus is like, yeah, that's funny. Everybody thinks I'm a dead guy. What are you guys who are my 12 closest friends, the, the 12 guys I've been walking around with, the 12 guys who like, you I mean, you guys are the ones that handed out the food from the loaves and fishes and fed 5,000 people. Who do you guys think that I am? Who do you say that I am? What have you heard? And so we have this disciple who pops up, Peter, who is always rash and never shy to share an answer. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I'm going to back up a second. People have been talking about who Jesus is. And I kind of wonder, and I just hope maybe you guys would shout this out. Today, people talk about who Jesus is. What do they say that Jesus is? Who do they say that Jesus is? Who do you hear about? I mean, when you hear about Jesus... What do people say about him? Shout out some, some things out. A good man. Okay, if I didn't, if you just said something different, say, say, say their next thing. So a good man is one thing. What else do we hear? A good teacher. How, what else? A great liar. A prophet. Anybody else? Crazy person, right? I love C.S. Lewis's take on it. He's 
He's either, Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic, or what we're going to talk about this morning, where he's Lord. He's always a liar or a lunatic, and people say that about him. What else? Anybody else got anything that you hear that people say about Jesus? About he's a bad word. You know, we just use the name as a random cuss word. It's, a, it's an odd thing to use somebody. Nobody has ever used Jamie as a cuss word. I mean, you could start. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, we can. It's like, I'll get on that bandwagon. Oh, Jamie. Jamie Pagels. Ah, oh, my tire's flat. Jamie. It was probably me. I probably stabbed your tire. So people say a lot of things about Jesus. They say he's a good teacher, a good man. Some people say he's a myth, a myth, a legend. I've even heard um, theories that he was actually an alien from outer space, from an advanced civilization who came down and was able to use his technology to heal people. And so now we've got this thing in society where you say, oh, he was God, but he was actually you know, from Mars or someplace like that. Although the Mars theory is not working out too well now that we've gone to Mars, so he's probably from Saturn or someplace like that. Uh, other people think that, you know, based on the pictures, he was an Anglo-Saxon with really nice hair. Um, you know, there are just lots of options and opinions about Jesus, but Christians, we know Jesus in a different way than the world knows him, right? Just like the disciples. The world knows Jesus as a great prophet, possibly a reincarnated alien from another planet. Who knows? There's all these things, a cuss word, but we know Jesus differently. And that's why Jesus asks his friends, who do you say that I am? It's the important question for his friends and for us this morning is, who do you say that I am? So Simon Peter, again, who's never shy, he just blurts out this answer. It's like ready right on his tongue. Do you catch how fast this happens in the text? He's like, everybody else is like, oh yeah, you're Elijah, or you're Jeremiah, or you're John the Baptist. And Peter's like, no, you are Jesus Christ, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter came to this realization about who Jesus is. It might have been what others were thinking in the group, but he's the one that actually, for the first time, articulates the identity of who Jesus Christ is. And Christians have been confessing this ever since. Ever since, we've been saying that Jesus is the Christ. We just recited it this morning in the Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. This confection is and has always been risky. It was risky right out of the gate uh, because he's risking, Peter is risking actual heresy here. At this time, the, the religious leaders said, look, if you say that anybody is the Messiah, you are guilty of heresy. You know, if you say that anybody is the son of God, the son of God, you are, you are a heretic. And in those days, they like to uh, get heretics stoned. And, you know, not like we do today. We don't go down to the you know, local shops and the, the flower shops or anything, but they would like use actual rocks to get them stoned um, outside the city square someplace. And they would die. Death by getting stoned. I don't know. I had to miss what you said. Sorry, I'll just keep going, though. I'm just going to keep going. Right. On that. So this confession is really risky. He is declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. That's that Jewish word. The one who is to come from God to save God's people. But there's something more that he is saying here. He's saying that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's also saying that he is the king. Now, notice where this says this is located. Um, they are gathered together in the region of Caesarea Philippi, right? That's what it says. You know, Caesarea Philippi, that sounds like a great place. Okay, so this is like Cancun is what it is. It is a gorgeous Mediterranean beach town. 
the Romans absolutely loved it. It used to be uh, named after this Greek god named Pan, right? Which is where the word we get the word pantheism from. Are you familiar with that? That everything is God. That God is everywhere and everything is God. This is like not a new religion, although people are worshiping it even today. You know, they're saying, "Oh, would you just send positive thoughts out into the universe? Would you um, just just think positively for me?" And or the universe guides our life. Or you think the universe puts us where? ever we need to be. Have you guys heard people say these things? You know, it's just a common phrase we throw around, but it's really pantheism, and it's a very, very, very old religion, and it's not true, okay? There is a God, and Pan is not him. So Caesarea Philippi used to be named Panea, which was named after Pan, and it had this huge uh, temple in it to Pan. Then Caesar comes along, and in the, around the first century, Caesar starts to get this idea in his head, the leader of the Roman world, like, Look, I am all-powerful. I have all the chariots. I have all the horses. I have all the Roman legionnaires. I rule everything from India to England. It would take me two years to move my troops from one point to the other. It is so vast and so huge. And guess what? There is no other god in this region except for Caesar. So now Caesar has declared himself, actually, the son of God. He has declared himself the king, um, and he's declared himself God himself. And so Caesar looks at this beautiful little seaside town named after Pan, Panea, and he renames it Caesarea Philippi, Caesar's place. And they build this giant temple to Caesar worship there. And it's in this location where there is this temple to Pan, the god of the universe, and there is this temple to Caesar, the god of everything. And if you don't worship me, you're not only uh, not patriotic, you're also going to die. It's in the shadow of this place that the disciples are gathered with Jesus. And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the King. You are the Son of God, not Caesar, but you. It's risky, risky what he is saying. He is declaring that Jesus is not just some spiritual Jewish uh, event. He's not just this promised Messiah, but he is also the King that he has authority even over Caesar. Very, very dangerous word. So when Peter says this, we know that something's going on. In the dominant language of the day, uh, Peter would be saying that, Jesus, you're the Christos. The Old Testament authors use the word Christos. So when they translated the Old Testament into the modern dominant language of the day, Greek, they used the word Christos to describe the king. So King David was a Christos. Uh, King Saul was a Christos, King Solomon a Christos, but all with a lowercase c. But it's interesting, in the Greek, Peter declares this with a capital. He says, you are the Christos, the Christ, the promised Messiah, the king, the rightful ruler over everything, over all that we know, all that we see, in even the shadow of the power of Rome. It is very dangerous, very dangerous backwards for the day. Then Peter uses a second title. He says that Jesus is the Christ, the Christos, and then he says he's the Son of God. Now, the Old Testament uses this title, Son of God, to describe godly people. You know, Elijah was a son of God. Moses was a son of God. And they, they, they throw this around to say, this is a godly, this is a righteous person. And then the New Testament even flips that even further and says that, behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. Now, I added the daughters. It just says sons in the, in the text. But we can say that we're talking about all genders here, right? 
that what manner of love God has for us, that we could be sons of God. But Peter, he throws in this one little word, and who knows that words matter, right? Words absolutely matter. He says, you are the son of God, the only son of God. There are lots of reasons that Peter could say this, but I want to kind of walk through two. Now, theologically speaking, there's like, there's literally like 10 solid reasons that people say that Jesus is the Son of God. And they go through Scripture, and they'll parse it all out, and it's got great big words and all kinds of stuff. But I want to keep it simple. Two good reasons that Jesus is considered the Son of God. The first one is this. It's his closeness to his Father. Last week, we looked at the Lord's Prayer, and we saw how Jesus introduces us to the Father, right? He doesn't just he doesn't just say, I want you to pray like this. Here is your written mode of prayer. Take this apart and make sure you do all of these things. He is telling us something intimately important about who God really is, that God is our loving dad, but that he is also our father who art in heaven. He's not our father in the living room. He's not our father in the bathroom. He's our father in heaven. He is intimately close and intimately trans, or completely transcendent. He is completely and utterly powerful over all things, and yet he wants to know you and be in your life personally. So Jesus introduces him and has this sense of closeness to the Father. He's as close as a father and son can be. Closer because like, unlike even the closest of father and sons here, where there can be breaks in our relationship, misunderstandings, anger, hurt, pride, Jesus is completely one with his Father in purpose and in heart and in mind and in action. Jesus even says, I only do what I see my Father doing. I only speak what I hear my Father speaking. He is perfectly united as God's Son. The second reason that Peter, I think, says that Jesus is God's only Son is his authority. Have you ever noticed that Jesus doesn't argue very much with people? Like, when you're reading the New Testament or hearing the stories about Jesus, you don't hear about, like, him getting down and saying, hey, Today is Pharisee and Jesus debate club. You know, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious rulers and leaders, they show up to Jesus and they've got questions. They're always trying to bring him down. They're always trying to catch him in some, some little inconsistency or a heresy so they can take him and get him stoned. Uh, but Jesus never argues with these people. He doesn't argue very much. Instead, every time he's challenged, Jesus speaks with authority. In fact, People all the time are saying, who is this guy? What, how can he speak with such authority? Not just teach like and have great illustrations, but have an authority that makes me sit up, pay attention, wake up. I need to hear what this man is saying because it changes everything. He speaks with authority. Whenever Jesus comes around, that authority is on display. Have you noticed like the demons? Have you read the stories of Jesus and the demons? Okay, so like we watch movies nowadays and demons are like, you know, they vomit and their heads spin and they're like, it's all powerful and the Catholic priest is freaking out and, you know, people are generally running. We need to take this person to get them some help, but nobody seems to be able to help because the demon is all powerful. But in the New Testament, demons look nothing like that. So Jesus walks into a town and the demons that are inside people like suddenly fall to the ground and crawl up to him and start begging for their lives. They're like, have you come to destroy us? It's not time for you to destroy us yet. They're supposed to be in a point of time. Why are you here to destroy us now? It's like, let us just get out of here. Let us, we'll go into the pigs. Pigs seem like a good idea, right? That Jesus is so authoritative and so powerful that even pigs and running off of a cliff and dying a horrible pig suicide seems attractive to being in his presence for a demon. 
you know what's really awesome? The same power that was in Jesus lives in us. Man, we sure give demons a lot of authority. That's just a side note. When the storms come up, Jesus is taking a nap. The disciples are freaking out. Guys have been on the water their whole lives. This storm's going to take us out. Somebody better wake up Jesus because he's going to have to start swimming soon. Jesus sits up and he's like, storm, shut it. You have to say that in a Scottish accent. You can't say it anyway, right? He said, shoot it if you can. And suddenly the storm just ceases. No whimper of thunder. No giant waves washing over the boat. It just stops. And the disciples are like, who is this man that even the winds and waves obey him? His best friend, Lazarus. Well, not quite best friend, but one of his really close friends, Lazarus, dies. He's sick and he's like far away from Jesus. And Jesus is out ministering and he gets told that Lazarus is sick and he's dying and he should come soon. But Jesus is listening to his father and working on his father's timing and he waits and then Lazarus dies and then Jesus comes to his grave and he's like, yeah, Lazarus, wake up. It's time to get up. It's time to get up. And Lazarus sits up in his grave and comes out. He'd been dead for four days. The authority with which Jesus speaks points to his identity as the Son of God. Not thunder, not lightning, not storms, not death, not demons dare to touch Jesus, not dare to defy Jesus. All of them lay down, they grovel, they go away. Jesus himself actually weighs in on the subject too, though, of his authority. When Jesus was teaching at the temple once, some people cornered him. And they asked him just outright, okay, they asked him just outright, who are you? Are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. And his reply is this, I've, I've told you, but you didn't believe me. The works that I've done in my Father's name bear witness to who I am. I give people eternal life, and they will never perish. My Father, who, was given, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them from my Father's hand. And then he says this, I and my Father are one. Everything about the life of Jesus backs up his claim to be Christ, King, Messiah, Son of God. And because of this, Christians throughout the ages have given him that title. We've said over and over again that he is Jesus Christ. First is just his name. This is the person. Second, Christ. He is King. He is Messiah. He is the one that has come to save, and he is the one to rule. He is God's only Son. He has authority. He has connection. He has power. This is God's one and only Son come to earth. This is God come down to bring his kingdom, made flesh and walking among us. And then they end it with this, our Lord. For Christians to confess Jesus as Lord has been a problem for society for a very long time. Caesar, again, had appropriated the title for himself. But by 150 AD, to, de to refuse to declare Caesar as Lord was to, to declare anything, actually, as Lord was not just unpatriotic, but it was sacrilegious and it was treason. Because of this, many people began to believe that Christians who by refusing to worship Caesar were the cause of things like famine, who were the cause of things like drought. You're not worshiping the right God. You keep saying Jesus is Lord, so it must be your fault that the economy has crashed. Then they started accusing him of crazy things like performing black magic because they'd go into these houses that were enclosed because they were hiding from the world because they were afraid that they were going to be put on a pole and lit on fire or thrown into the lion's pit or taken and, and used in the Roman games. It was dangerous to confess Jesus as Lord. So they were hiding, and so people began to accuse them of black magic. 
They began to accuse them of child sacrifice. I mean, it's easy to see how you'd get that if you didn't understand that God's only son was sacrificed on a cross for our sins. That's easy to translate into Christians practice child sacrifice. They began to then accuse them of cannibalism. These guys, they get together and they're eating this bread and wine and they're saying that this is the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus that was broken for them and they're eating it and somehow something happens inside of them and the Catholic Church eventually spun this whole idea out that it literally transforms in your mouth to the blood and body of Jesus, which is really gross and I don't want to go into that. But of course, they get accused of cannibalism. It's crazy. And I want you to know this. There is no historical or archaeological evidence to support any of those claims. We are not cannibals. We are not black magic practitioners, nor do we practice child sacrifice. How many of you are glad? So it was dangerous in the early church to declare anybody but Caesar as Lord. And from the very get-go, Christians have been saying, but Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the rightful ruler and authority over all that we know and see, over all history, over all time, over all lives. And you know what? I'm, I'm going to declare that Jesus is Lord, even in the face of great opposition, even in the face of being thrown into the gladiator's pit to die at the hand of a sword, to die by the mouth of a lion, to die by being lashed to a pole and used at a garden party as a torch. I have to declare this because of what I've seen, and I'm not going to turn my face away from my Lord, because my life is at risk. Listen, we throw this word around a lot at church. That Jesus is Lord, right? We can sneak it into a song pretty easily. We did it this morning in several of our songs. We just declared Jesus is Lord. We, we, we sneak it into our prayers. And some Christians do this like they try to get it in there as many times as absolutely possible. Have you ever prayed to people like this? You might be one of these people. You get into a group and they're like, Lord God, Lord God, Lord God, Lord God. I'm like, and, and the Lord God's going, are you, are you what? You got something to say? And then we just keep throwing And it's like this weird filler thing we do. But at the same time, we're actually declaring something. We're declaring that Jesus is Lord. We sneak it into all sorts of things. But I want you to understand this. For centuries, to declare Jesus as Lord has been one of... And, and we do this when we recite the, the creed. And it was true for early believers, and it's true for us today, that as we do this, it's simultaneously the greatest act of rebellion against this world and the greatest act of, of allegiance. To say that Jesus is Lord is, is a, a rejection of the dominant narratives of our life, the, the stories that we are being taught to live. Now, those stories go something like this. You are a purchaser primarily. This is materialism. Your job in this capitalist society is to purchase things. So that's how your function works. You earn money so you can purchase stuff. You can purchase a new television, a house, a car, uh, an instrument could be anything, but your primary role is a purchaser. But under the lordship of Jesus, things change. As a primarily a purchaser, your lord is the market. Your lord is your desire for more stuff. Your your identity and your value comes from purchasing. But if Jesus is lord, then your identity comes as a son or daughter of God then your identity comes as one who has been saved and rescued and healed by the king who was and is and is to come. So to confess Jesus as Lord is an act of rebellion against all of the narratives of this world. 
You're primarily a sexual object or sexual being. You were primarily a girl. You were primarily a boy. You were primarily a husband. You were primarily a wife. You were primarily a purchaser. You were primarily a worker. You were primarily a cog in the machine. All of these things that devalue humanity and human life. To declare Jesus as Lord is to say, none of that is true. When we confess Jesus as Lord, we reject every other story out there. The stories that we find meaning in life through, the stuff that we own, the story that says that I have to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend in order to be valuable. I have to have a husband or wife in order to be seen. I have to have a job that is making uh, three figures in order to be worthwhile in our society. And we say, no, Jesus is Lord. And it's not just a mindless rejection of those things. It is very much a decision in the heart to start seeing things from a different perspective, from God's perspective. This is where the rubber really meets the road in life. If you're like me, and you're really quick to declare, you, if you're like me at all, and I, I, I keep trying to point the eye here, I am quick to declare Jesus as my Savior, right? It's the first way I understood him, that I understood that I I was sinful, that I was broken, that I was lost. And without a Savior, without somebody to rescue me from this, from somebody to pull me out of the muck and mire of my own mess, then I would never be able to be with God. I would live this life and that would be the end of it. Or maybe there would be hell and, and, and suffering and, and nobody wants that. And so I need a Savior. So I declare Jesus as my Savior because he has saved me. He brought me up out of the miry pit is the, how the song goes. We, we look at the cross and we say that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is our Savior. And we're quick to say, He is my Savior. But we don't quickly, I don't quickly move from Jesus is my Savior to Jesus is my Lord. Because it's at Jesus is my Lord that I begin to have to shift my perspective on ethical issues, on the, the, the moral issues, on abortion, on sex before marriage, on living with somebody out of wedlock. I mean, there's all these moral issues that our world brings up and says, hey, just do what feels right. If I declare Jesus as Lord, who is the king and rightful authority and ruler over my life, suddenly I've got to look at every area of my life from his perspective, not from my own. So I'm quick to say, Jesus, I want you to save me, but I'm not quick to say, now, Jesus, I want you to command me. I want you to rule me. I want you to teach me how I should live, the way I should go, how to make decisions, what's important to you. I want you to teach me about this kingdom that you're bringing, and I want to be a part of that kingdom, and not just be a part of it by being saved, but by bringing it. I want to reflect your kingdom in every way. That's what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. And I want you to know that this is a sign of spiritual maturity. We grow and we meet Jesus, and we have this moment where I have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. This is, this is good times right here, and this is wonderful. But Jesus is calling us to declare him as Lord, to move our lives more and more into his kingdom, into his rule, so that he can look into our hearts and take us into closets and in corners and say, hey, there's this, this skeleton in here I want to talk with you about. There's this family history of brokenness that goes into the past that's causing you to make decisions in how you live and act, and I want to talk to you about that. That's what it means that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord changes our perspective. It means that we perceive life differently. 
when we talk about things like discernment, about wisdom, about understanding, we're talking about perspective, looking at life from God's perspective. Scripturally speaking, whenever the Bible talks about things like hard-heartedness, blindness, dullness, we're talking about seeing life not from God's perspective. Jesus is moving us from darkness to light, from blindness to sight, from deafness to hearing. He is changing our perspective on everything. I've come to a place that I want to talk about something really hard, something that has been weighing on my heart a lot recently. We're living in a world right now that is full of tragedy. Any of you guys notice this? Anybody paying attention? Anybody notice this? That our world right now is just, it is tragic. I don't know if this is just, you know, modern news that is helping us out. Like it's on the internet, it's on our phones, it's on the television, it's on the radio. You can't turn the dial without hearing somebody else die. There was a shooting here. There was a rally here and then the police did this. And there has just been tragedy after tragedy. And when I think about it, it seems like it all goes back to like 9-11. Like before 9-11, I don't remember the world being like this. But since 9-11, especially here in the United States, we've been exposed to the news of death and suffering, of war, of terror attacks. We have fear at every corner. Then there was Hurricane Katrina. Then there was the tsunami uh, over in South Asia. And then there was earthquakes in Italy. Then there was a civil war in Syria and ISIS attacks across Europe. And now we have back-to-back hurricanes sandwiching a major earthquake in Mexico. There's a mass shooting in Las Vegas this last week. And that doesn't even include racial tension in our country. It doesn't even include the political divides. It doesn't include police violence. It doesn't include uh, immigration policy, building a wall, taking kids that have been grown up here and taking them to another country. All of these things are about human suffering and loss of life. And I got to tell you, this last week, when news came out about the shooting in Las Vegas, I didn't feel anything. I was like, man, it happened again. Man, somebody else got a gun and killed somebody. And as soon as I realized that I didn't feel anything, as soon as I realized that I didn't just have this deep sadness over the loss of 58 lives, 59 if you count the gunman, I realized something is wrong in my heart. I am experiencing what you many people in the United States are experiencing. And this was in the news this last week. Heidi was talking about it. She heard it on on the radio. Um, that the effect that all of this news is having on our society is giving us what's called compassion fatigue. It's bringing us to a place where it's just one more news story. It's not a life anymore. I can't feel sorry for anybody else because I have felt so sorry for so many people for so long. I don't know that the world is actually any worse than it was a 1,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago or if just our news is making it so that every spare moment we just see tragedy. But as a pastor... I've had to wrestle with each of these events. And I've been asking myself, how do we as a church talk about this? How do we talk about race riots without politicizing it? Because that's the quickest thing we do. Oh, Black Lives Matter is just a political movement. Well, it's been a, come a political movement, but it started because black lives didn't feel like they mattered. And then police violence. Are the police our enemy or are they our friend? How do we support police that are our friends? And how do we, how do we condemn uh, excessive force and excessive violence? The wars in Syria, you know, how do, we, how do we parse this out? Who's right? I mean, now it's this 
this this war between America and Russia in the middle of Syria, and people are bombing and being killed day in day day in and day out, and it's it's tragic and it's horrible. How do we address this as a church? How do we be conservative Christians and say it's not okay to deport children to third world countries? What does Jesus say about all this? How do we hold all this in our hearts? I wonder, why is it that when I think about these things, I don't know how to share with you what I think we should do or what I think God thinks we should do, and so I just pray because it feels like that's the only thing I can do. Why is it that even the things that we can do feel so helpless, like giving? I can give to the people that are in Mexico. I can give to Foursquare Disaster Relief and help people. I can, I can vote. I can vote my opinion. I can let my voice be heard. I can, I can go. I can protest. I can be involved in these things. I could go and be the hands of Jesus for those people that are suffering in some other country. I, why is it that it feels like that's just all I can do? Why does that feel so small, so helpless, so hopeless? When you feel like this, I hope that this will do what we're talking about in EHS with our leaders. I hope that it will prompt you, as it has prompted me, to wonder. I wonder what is going on in my heart. It prompted me to wonder, and I had this moment, and if you watched uh, the movie Hook from, with Robin Williams from like 30 years ago, it's like super old now, but it was awesome. Great movie. Recommend going watch it. Smeed comes to Captain Hook, and he says this. He goes, I've had an apostrophe. And he looks at it like, what? I've had an apostrophe, like lightning struck me brain. And I said to myself, I wonder why am I feeling this way? Why does my prayer seem like all I can do is pray? Why does my my voting, my giving, even my willingness to go seem so small in comparison to the magnitude of the earthquake, to the size of the destruction of the hurricane, and to the death in Las Vegas? Why does it seem so small? The apostrophe was this. I am struggling with an issue of lordship. God doesn't seem like Lord right now. Because when I look around, I see pain, I see suffering, I see death, and I see destruction. And right now, the hurricanes that are whipping through the Caribbean look more like Lord than my God does. Right now, the political divide in our country looks more like the Lord than Jesus does. If Jesus is my Savior, I'm wondering why he's not doing much saving right now. I'm wondering why so many people are suffering. I'm praying, but it doesn't seem to make a difference. I'm giving, but the need is so great. I'm serving people, but there's always more to serve. What will all of this think, what all this thinking shows me is that it's not that the problem is that is too big and that I'm too small. I say that again. What this shows me is not that the problem is too big and that I am too small, but that the problem is great and my God is not greater in my own eyes, my own mind, my own heart. This is an issue of lordship. Jesus is Lord. He is the sovereign king over everything, and he is sovereignly working in our midst, in the middle of our troubles. That's what the life of Jesus shows us. 
that he is not separated from our world's problems. He didn't say, oh, hey, wait, the Romans are there and they're not very nice guys, so I'm going to hang on just a little while longer till Rome falls. I'll show up, you know, around 1500, maybe around the time of the Reformation, and I'll hang out with the good German Lutherans, and, you know, then it'll be good then, but then they're burning people and beheading people, so that's maybe not a good time either. No, he comes in the midst of the hardest time of history, under the most brutal dictatorship that our world has known. He steps into the middle of that suffering and goes all the way to a cross and experiences our pain. Jesus is in the midst of this. But his cross shows us that death isn't the end and that he is Lord over even death because he does, and we are going to talk about this in a few days, rise from the dead. He is Lord over all. Remember what his kingdom looked like, no hunger. So Jesus is sovereignly sending people out to feed people in his name, bringing his kingdom no sickness. So they're going out and healing. They're healing mentally. They're, they're, they're counselors. They're, they're first responders. They're people leading EHS courses to help us heal on the inside. But they're also people who are supernaturally, physically touching the lives of people and seeing healing happen. And I know you may not have seen one of these, but I have and others have. And it is happening all across this world at all times. The people of God are bringing his kingdom through healing, both naturally and supernaturally. And that there is going to be no death in the midst of the kingdom of our Lord. So we become agents of life in the midst of death. We become agents of hope in the midst of destruction. We put this up here, let hope rise. And that's kind of like a cool chalkboardy thing. But I guess my prayer that hope would rise around us because we are the kingdom of God here and now, you and me. Jesus is bringing it through us and he is Lord and there is no suffering, there is no temptation, there is no death, there is no hurricane, there is no earthquake that can stand against the lordship of Jesus Christ because he is sovereignly sending us into it. But our minds and our hearts have to begin to trust the lordship of Jesus under the lordship of Jesus, no situation is hopeless. Let me say that again. Under the lordship of Jesus, there is no hopeless situation. The pain and suffering may last for a night. We may see more and more and more of these things. And the Bible kind of promises us this. It says This is the signs of the ends of the time. Wars and rumors of wars, Right? Famine and suffering. My mom, like we were talking last week or two weeks ago, she's like, boy, this has got to be the end time. She's good at Pentecostal, so she always does this. You know, Anytime you talk to mom, she's like, it must be the end time. She's like, hurricanes and rumors of hurricanes, right? It's like suffering and death all around us. But in the midst of that, we declare Jesus is Lord, that there is no other narrative, there is no other story, there is no power in this earth, no power of hell, no scheme of man, could ever pluck us from his hand. Under the lordship, death does not have the final say. And one day, one day, Revelation says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's not going to be because Jesus put his hands on their shoulders and sovereignly squished them to the ground and said, confess. It's going to be because people are going to look around and with their own two eyes see that there is no other Lord, that there is no other power, that there is no other authority, that none of these earthquakes, none of these wars, none of these famines, none of these dictators can compare to Jesus. And they will grovel on the ground as the demons did. They will flee as death did. 
as hunger did, as sickness did, when Jesus was present, no one will be able to deny it. So we're going to spend two minutes, as we have been, as we've been our practice, in silence. And then we'll close with a, a final song. This time I'm going to actually set up my phone to do this. We're going to spend one minute in silence. And here's what I'd like you to do with this minute. Again, we are all across the board in our beliefs, right? We're all across our board in our relationship to Jesus. Some of this is like, if you're far from God or you just don't even believe in Jesus or you're like still back at he's a nice guy or a good teacher, you're going, that's crazy what you're talking about. Jesus is Lord. You're right. Here's what I want you to do for a moment. As we spend a minute in silence, I want you to close your eyes and not fall asleep. I want you to imagine with me, if you will, that you are the 13th disciple that day. Jesus is looking at you and the other 12 guys sitting there, and he says to you, who do you say that I am? I'm going to give you a minute to think that through. Start now. you, but I'm getting to the place where a minute of silence isn't long enough. A minute of just being open and listening to the Lord. Um, Worship team, would you guys come up and lead us in this last song? Um, This morning, you may have in that time of silence um, said to Jesus, "Um, Jesus, you are my Savior. But you may realize from your life that he is not yet Lord. I want you to know that there is grace for you, that Jesus isn't standing ready to lord over you in such a way that he is squashing you to the ground and saying, look, your behavior doesn't measure up. He's inviting you into more. So as we sing, I just want you to offer up your heart to him. To say, look, Jesus, I want to declare you as Lord. I want you to be Lord. And I'm not sure I completely get the ramifications of what that means, but I pray that you would show me in my heart where you are not, Lord, and lead me into the paths of righteousness. Would you do that? Would you stand with us? And one last thing. I've been sharing a quote from uh, A.W. Tozer the last few weeks, but I'm going to give you a different quote from him. I want to say this one last thing, and that's this. A.W. Tozer said this, A scared world needs a fearless church. When we declare Jesus is Lord, let's go into this world fearlessly. Amen? Let's go into this world and know that he is Lord. So let's uh, sing, shall we?
and uh, declare Jesus as our Lord.